Two and a Half Admins, episode 143. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara article plug is understanding ZFS VDEV types. Yeah, I made Jim write up a nice article explaining all the different VDEV types. <laughs> he wouldn't stop beating me until I finished. It was awful. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Adobe tells users they can get sued for using old versions of Photoshop. Well, of course they do. Yeah, they say that they've got the new version now, so the old one that you had a license to use, that is no longer valid and you must stop using it or you may face action. The threats were very vague and not specific, but the sentiment was clear. Yeah, the sentiment has been clear, to be fair, for a long time. This is really not new. It, I get that it's news and it's breaking and that's why we're covering it, but there is absolutely nothing new in 2023 about proprietary software companies telling people, you don't own Jack. <laughs> you have a license to use the software that we created under the terms that we're willing to grant you to use it, and that's it. And as the years go by, proprietary software vendors, they get friskier and friskier about it. They're like, oh, well, it's, yeah, we, we really do. Like, they don't know anything, do they? We can make them do whatever we want. If you want to use software the way that you want to use software without a ton of onerous restrictions, well, you need to get your happy little ass into open source because that's the only way it happens. Yeah, I don't happen to have a copy of the EULA handy for old versions of Photoshop. But even if they don't say, you know, once a newer version's out, you can't use this version or something, they usually do have a clause that, you know, we can change the EULA later. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to stop using Photoshop 7 that I've got that must be like 20 years old at this point and runs perfectly in Wine. Although I do use GIMP more and more these days, to be fair. I, I ditched Photoshop for GIMP before Creative Cloud was a thing. Yeah, I just kind of already knew Photoshop. and I did too. I had been using Photoshop for probably 15 years. I mostly had the other one from Jask Software or something like that. What was it called? Yeah, yeah, it was like uh, Image Something Pro. I, I know what you're talking about. Paint Shop Pro? Yes. No, I was a Photoshop guy, but... Once I found out about GIMP, it didn't take me long to figure out there were two or three things that Photoshop does a lot better than GIMP. It didn't take me much longer than that to find a couple or three things that GIMP was better at than Photoshop. And I do still miss some of the things that GIMP is bad at. The really big thing is it's such a simple thing, but just trying to cleanly stroke outline text, like to make a meme with upper and bottom text in GIMP sucks. <laughs> Absolutely sucks. There are a million different tutorials on how to do it. Not a single one of them agree, and none of them are, you know, less than like three pages long of like nonsense you got to do with, you know, build a mask here and, you know, do the thing there. Whereas in, you know, Photoshop, you can literally just stroke the text and it works fine. I miss that, but I really, really love the fact that I have GIMP on every device I go to if I want it, even when they're before, I can just download and install. It's fine. There's no paywall. There's no get out your credit card. There's no get corporate approval. Just none of all that crap. No, just do your thing. Edit your image. I value that far more highly than I value any of the, quote, missing, unquote, features, personally. The only feature of Photoshop that I was hard addicted to for a long time was their optimized for web thing for making JPEGs and PNGs for websites. PNG Crush and Image Magic and all the open source tools just couldn't get the file size to be anywhere near as small or look anywhere near as good. But now people don't have 56K dial-up, so it doesn't matter. 
I had pretty good results out of ImageMagic's uh, compression, personally. Yeah, it's just the, the Photoshop one was always better about like coming up with the right custom palette of colors for the GIF. Which is fine when you're just like making the one image and you want to do the thing right then as you're making the image. But I tell yeah. you what, <laughs> when you inherit operations on a website with, you know, a few tens of thousands of images and you need to make improvements to all of them, mm-hmm. whole lot easier to script that with iMagic than it is <laughs> in Photoshop. I think the last time I was doing it was a Minecraft world map. And Photoshop was choking on it pretty hard because the image was a massive resolution. And so it needed like four gigs of RAM when that was a lot for the uncompressed version of the PNG. But it did eventually make an image that we could show on the podcast and it looked a lot better than what Image Magic could do out of it. But that's a pretty obscure example at this point. But yeah, I think the back to the story about Adobe, actually, a lot of this is driven by the fact that Adobe switched to basically a recurring revenue model. So instead of selling you a version of Photoshop every couple of years, they're like, what if we could charge you for Photoshop every single month? And they want to get the last people who aren't paying them every single month over to paying them every single month. Plus, it's also allowed them to eliminate a lot more piracy than they could have ever done before. And, you know, this is probably a pretty good place for me to pivot into one of my favorite things that not everybody loves, which is license wonking. If you're using open source software, they have effectively EULAs. The license is your EULA. But, you know, it's generally human readable. It's pretty short. You know what the terms and conditions are. And better yet, there's only a few of them you need to learn before you know what your rights are with the vast majority of open source software you will ever encounter. Whereas when you're in the proprietary software world, if you truly want to know what you can or can't do with that software, you got to read a different like 15 or 20 page EULA written in lawyerese for every single software package. You got to read it from head to toe because you don't know what's in it. Nobody out there is saying, oh, well, this is proprietary software license, you know, 1.0 blue. I'm like, oh, I know that. I got, you know, I use 20 other programs that use that one. No, that's not a thing. You have to play lawyer if you want to figure out what you can or can't do with proprietary software every single time. And when you don't, you get bit in the ass with things like this. And you may get bit in the ass with it 10 or 15 years later because you didn't read 15 or 20 pages of legalese and understand it. What well, if it was only 15 pages like the GPL v3, that'd be one thing, but useless are usually massive tomes, which actually raises a question in my head. It's like, I've seen the number of companies that spend a lot of time going over an open source license, decide if they can use it or not, but they don't do the same thing with the EULAs on their software. They would never use any closed source software ever. Just thinking about the amount of faff it goes through to get an open source license approved, but any closed source software, it's just, yeah, okay, just we paid for it. It's fine. I think that's one of open source's biggest failures really Mm -hmm. as a movement as an idea is to really sell the idea that it is a pragmatic choice to use open source it's not just about ethics or because it's the right thing to do it is often the best thing to do it's less expensive for you it's less risky for you it's less paperwork for you etc etc you're less likely to have your data orphaned, you know, as software changes because, I mean, everything from you don't have to worry about vendor lock-in so much to, you know, even if the format of your data changes, it's easier to get hold of old versions. There's no paywall or, you know, legalese to prevent you from getting hold of the old version. Or there's this source code and you can write a converter. Better even than you being able to write a converter because even most of our listeners won't really be up to that task. But 
somebody, anybody who wants to can make a converter. So if you're talking about a very popular software package, there will probably be lots of converters available out there. Again, you know, any of my fellow very old and crusties out there, you know, you'll run into people who are very upset because they have documents that got, you know, orphaned with like WordStar or something, and they never really paid attention. And then they desperately want to get into that document 20 years later, and they, you know, they have a lot of difficulty doing it. And now you're scouring and hoping you can find something that will sort of give you access to that WordStar document, even if it's horribly mangled. But whatever's out there is kind of the best you're going to get, whatever. Whereas, I mean, open source stuff, man, there's... If 10,000 people were using that piece of open source software and it went away, somebody made sure there was a migration path away that you can use too. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Axiom. Go to axiom.co slash 25a, support the show, and start a 14-day free trial. Axiom unlocks observability at any scale. Developers are constantly taught to worry about how much they're logging due to providers using archaic architectures where ingest, storage, and querying are expensive. Axiom's data store was built from the ground up to be as efficient as possible for what developers need most, the ability to ingest and immediately query all the data their services produce. The $99 monthly plan offers 5 terabytes of monthly ingest, 90 days retention, unlimited users, sources, and hosts, and Splunk-like querying with APL. Start there and scale up to meet whatever data needs your company has. So go to axiom.co slash 25a, create an account, and start your 14-day free trial. You can do better than legacy logging with Axiom. Russian hackers use WinRAR to wipe Ukraine state agencies' data by making archives with the right flags that delete the original data that went into the archives and then deleting the archives. I don't really understand why they did this convoluted step of using WinRAR. So the headline had it a bit wrong. I think Jim figured this out, actually. Mm-hmm. So there's a little batch file that goes through C colon slash users and then D, E, F, G, Q, W. <laughs> At some point, it looks like they got lazy about typing out the letters of the alphabet in the right order and switched the order they are on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> it just got QWERTY in there randomly <laughs> at one point. But then it looks for anything that's a doc, docx, RTF, TXT, etc. And then it... You, takes all of these, takes ownership of the file, and feeds it into RINRAR with the dash DF flag, which will says delete it after you archive it. And then they delete it anyway as well. It's belt and suspenders. They're worried that maybe WinRAR won't actually delete the file, so they manually delete the file after it's added just in case. Mm -hmm. So in theory, what you should be seeing is a gigantic string of file not found errors from attempting to delete files that have already been removed. The archives themselves are not what's getting deleted. They're still there, but they're password protected with a password that the victim doesn't have. So what this really boils down to is some Russian state agency, it's like they heard us riffing on the idea of like a sysadmin lazily builds a CLI only password manager. It was like, hey, we could do that for ransomware. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's basically a shell script version of ransomware. It adds everything to a password protected archive. And then... When I read the headline, the summary, and then deletes it, I thought they meant they deleted the RAR, and then why did they bother adding all these files to an archive? But they actually delete WinRAR itself just so that they wouldn't even be able to try to open the file. Right, that's what I didn't understand. Okay, that makes more sense. So yeah, they they add all of the files to an, an encrypted archive and then delete the archiving tool so that you won't have a way to open it. The interesting question to me is just, WinRAR? Why? There's so many different things you could have done, you could have used for this purpose. 
and had it be just as brain dead stone axe simple as this was, what made you decide WinRAR? Like that had to have been more lulls than anything else, in my personal opinion. It was just the tool I always have on my computer. A license for it came with my motherboard, actually. <laughs> I was about to say, I hope the KGP paid for their copy of WinRAR. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's the old meme about the, the kid whose mom bought him a license for WinRAR because they always saw the pop up the you've exceeded your 30 days or whatever. And I don't get that on my machine because a license for it came with my motherboard because Asus decided that was the right thing to do. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that sales call <laughs> where somebody from WinRAR reached out to a motherboard manufacturer and was like, hey, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> you give me a whole bunch of money and I'll let you embed a key for this shareware into your motherboard. Wow, I would love to know how that collaboration came about. It's not built into the motherboard. It's just part of the software package or whatever. But yeah, I'd love to know how that came about. But I'm also just glad to have that license for WinRAR. Hell, I'd like to just know who reached out to who, because I could see that going either way. It seems equally improbable that Asus reached out, you know, just randomly to WinRAR and was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but it also seems wild to just be like, hmm, what if we called motherboard manufacturers and got them to buy, uh, like, all of our customers' wide license for our shareware? I like to think it's Asus that called them, and there's some random sales guy at Rinrar just had, like, the best month ever. <laughs> I sold licenses for, like, 100,000 motherboards. I like it either way, though, because imagine that same sales guy, but, like, he just got a great big old double handful of stones and just called motherboard manufacturers and got somebody at Asus that was a little more well-lubricated at work than normal, and the whole deal went through. <laughs> and now that guy gets to tell that story. Let me tell you what a sales rep I am. <laughs> the only comment currently on this story at the bottom is, the article doesn't mention if the hacker group paid for WinRAR. <laughs> Google Chrome is getting rid of the padlock icon. And people are up in arms. Why are they up in arms? Well, it would be pretty easy to get up in arms. My original reaction to that headline was pretty up in arms because it makes it sound like they're just not going to bother giving you a visual indication whether the site that you're on is, is properly secured or not, which is not actually the case. What they're really doing is they're going from default insecure, meaning you don't see any icon unless everything is properly secured, to the visual default is assumption that things are secure. However, if you connect to a site that has a screwed up certificate or no certificate whatsoever, you know, just plain text, HTTP, you will get a warning icon in the address bar instead. Oh, that means we can't go to Alan's website without seeing a warning now. Going to Alan's website was probably already worth a warning. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been updated since like 2013. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell. Yeah, their justification is that 95% of the page loads for Chrome on Windows have been over HTTPS for a while now with things like Let's Encrypt and just the general trend. If the icon's going to be there 95% of the time, then it's not something you want to draw attention to. People are going to just stop noticing that it's a thing, whereas highlighting it when it's not does make more sense. In particular, their plan is to replace the icon with the tune icon, which is the one with a bunch of sliders, because you still want a button there to click to see the details of the certificate and control things like, you know, are pop-ups allowed and so on. It just won't be the padlock icon anymore. And part of the justification is that it's a false sense of security because loads of phishing sites have got a Let's Encrypt cert configured 
and everything's hunky-dory when it comes to HTTPS, but it's still a site that you don't want to trust. And so having a padlock there isn't really a good look. No, it's not, because the padlock was always intended to be a positive identification that this site is extra secure, which is no longer appropriate when we expect everything to be HTTPS and have a valid certificate. So that is the normal now, and it's entirely appropriate to not have a badge for that. You don't give people a badge that says this is exactly what you expected it to be. That's not really how notification systems work. (laughs) When you have an extra icon or badge or flash or whatever you want to call it on a thing, it's supposed to call your attention to something that's unusual about that thing. And when the padlock first showed up, it in fact did denote something unusual about a site. At that time, it was highly unusual for a site to be HTTPS and have a valid cert and everything all in line. And so notifying you that this site went the extra mile to make sure all that happened, that totally made sense. Now, it's not the extra mile. Yeah, and it's what Google calls out in their blog saying. We know that the lock icon does not indicate a website's trustworthiness. It's just that the connection is private. They redesigned the lock icon in 2016 after our research showed that many users misunderstood what the icon was trying to convey. Despite our best efforts, when we redid the study in 2021, we showed that only 11% of study participants correctly identified the precise meaning behind the lock icon. This misunderstanding is not harmless. Nearly all phishing sites use HTTPS and have the lock icon, and this has resulted in you know, the FBI publishing explicit guidance that says the lock icon does not mean the website is safe. Reading that, it reminded me of like, do you remember when EVSSL was going to be a big thing? I remember when people said it would be. Yeah. I remember like the first time one of my banks had the green bar. I don't think that bank even bothered renewing that one after that. I don't think EVSSL went anywhere. The reason it didn't go anywhere is because it was just too deep in the weeds for normies to care about it. You're never going to get normies to give a shit whether a certificate is Let's Encrypt or Standard or EV or you know anything else. You really can't get them to give much of a shit about whether it has a certificate on it or not at all. So this really is a much better way of signifying things to the normal people that it's really intended for is to say, okay, everything's normal. There's, you don't have to see anything. You don't have to look for a green light to say, this is just okay. Everything's just okay until it's not. And when it's not, something new and unfamiliar shows up and that draws your attention. That makes you say, what is that thing? I should look at that to the extent that you can reach folks browsing the web at all, which is a little questionable, but some, you'll certainly reach more that way than you will the other. Basically, in 2023, having an extra special, like, I actually have a a valid SSL cert icon in the browser, it's like walking around with a sticker on your shirt that says, I tied my own shoes this morning. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. No worries if you're not a pro in the kitchen. HelloFresh's foolproof recipes arrive pre-proportioned and easy to prepare in just a few steps. HelloFresh does more than just delicious dinners. Not only can you take your pick from 40 weekly recipes, you can choose from over 100 items to round out your order, from snacks and easy lunches, to desserts and pantry necessities. Everything arrives in one box, and on a delivery day, you choose. Jim tried HelloFresh and was really impressed with the minimal recyclable packaging and said the pepita-crusted salmon meal was restaurant quality. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 25admin16 and use the code 25admin16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com 
slash 25admin16 and the code 25admin16. Our decision to wind down Amazon Halo. This is a post from Amazon's company news blog. And the bottom line is that their line of health tracker wristbands and stuff are getting bricked. Not just no more features, no more security updates, but just totally bricked. And if you bought it within the last year, you can get a refund. But otherwise, you're just shit out of luck. I mean, of course they're totally bricked because everything of interest in those devices wasn't in those devices. It happens in the cloud, and the device is really just a sensor that feeds your data to the cloud. So if the entity that owns the cloud decides, I don't want to do this anymore, well, you don't have anything anymore. How is this legal? Nobody's written a law to say you can't do that. Yeah, why? Because the U.S. has really bad consumer protection laws. I know, but why has no one written a law? How long has the cloud existed, Joe? I don't know, 20 years, arguably? 15? How quickly do you think legislation moves? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. If game companies can get away with shutting down the online services behind games pretty quickly, then I can see this happening. Yeah, but a game is a digital download. Not always. Like, even if you bought a copy on a DVD, it won't work if the if it depends on an online service that it's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we got to the point where they had to include a label telling you about that, but that's the extent of it. But this is a physical product with a battery and stuff that is just totally useless and just e-waste now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People should be outraged about this. If people were going to be outraged about this, they'd have been outraged a decade before this particular incident ever happened. Yeah. Like, what about people that bought thermostats that don't work anymore or tons and tons of other devices? Phones that only get one update or no updates. Mm -hmm. But the thing is with a phone, it still kind of works. You know, I can get a 10-year-old phone out of the drawer and as long as the battery hasn't exploded, it's going to work to some extent. Actually, your 10-year-old phone might very well be 2G, and no, you might not be able to make a call on the damn thing because they've sunsetted the entire protocol that it used to connect to the cellular network. I have devices right now that don't work because they rely on 2G connectivity to the internet, and it's the only way they can do it, and there's no more 2G service in my area. Right. I could buy devices that need 2G connectivity right now. And 2G hasn't worked in my area for like a year or two at this point. Yeah, and you could argue that if a phone can't make phone calls, then it doesn't work. But you could also argue that if I dig out a 10-year-old phone and it's got Angry Birds installed on it and I can play Angry Birds on it or play my MP3s from it, then it has some functionality still. Yeah, and you can put an Amazon Halo that doesn't work on your wrist and it's still a little salmon pink accessory. So you still have some of the functionality of it. Again... Nothing lasts forever. Stars die. <laughs> These things didn't even last a year from when you bought it, which is maybe a problem. This is a pretty short timeline being like, oh yeah, we're, we're killing it off in like three months. Good luck. Did Amazon maybe hire a whole bunch of Google engineers for the Halo project? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but they're also like, uh, yeah, up until August 1st, you can log in and download all your data if you want to keep it or delete it so that we don't get to keep it. So you're not promising you'll delete it for anybody who doesn't manually go in and delete it? How's that work? And it's like, if you want to save your scan images to your phone's camera roll, then there's a whole set of instructions for that and so on. But yeah, this is uh, pretty shocking. And then I love how they're talking about how they're going to support the employees, but no details on what that means. But they only announced this product line and service 
in 2020, not even three years ago, and they're already shutting it down. I already asked you if they hired a bunch of Google folks. <laughs> well, yeah. Are they looking to try and acquire that image, that reputation that Google has? Because that's a great way to go about it. That's only a problem if you're the only one with that shitty reputation. Mm. So, you know, on the other hand, you'd be like, well, Google is, is still doing well. And, you know, look at all the trash they pull. Why don't we do that? We could just, you know, do whatever the hell we want. And it'll be fine. Look at Google. They led the way. Now, if you want an example of how to, you know, sunset a device like this responsibly, I can give you an example that's actually sitting right in my rack right now. I've got a little IoT device called Monitor.io. I covered it back when, uh, actually before I worked for Ars Technica full-time, I covered it for Ars. That was about the same time frame, actually. It's like three or four years. And um, recently, the company behind Monitor.io, they made the decision to shut the doors. They just weren't financially sustainable. And the way that device works, it uh, it gives you information about your internet connection quality. And the way that it does that, rather than by, you know, doing a traditional fat speed test that eats up your entire pipe, they monitored latency instead. They had a, uh, a global network of test targets, and they would measure the latency that it took you to get to the test targets around the world to let you know, like, you know, what was the health of your internet connection which was great. You, you had a really nice quality monitor 24-7, lots of interesting metrics you could look up on it, and it didn't, well, frankly, shit up your internet connection, like, you know, running speed tests the way, uh, you know, like Eero and, uh, to a lesser degree, Plume, you know, they want to run automated speed tests, like, every day, and during the time that speed test is running, your Wi-Fi is going to suck. Monitor I.O. is not going to do that to you. But anyway, the point being, the company was closing, but the way they did it is they actually provided open source firmware that you can flash to the damn thing. Now, you don't have all of the functionality of, you know, their entire distributed network when the company was running it, but everything it's possible to do without the company, they actually wrote new firmware on the way out and gave it to all their customers to make sure they didn't leave completely useless bricks behind, which is amazing. I wonder how far in advance they did that. I don't really have a, a good way to know that. Um, I found out at the same time everybody else did, basically, which was uh, when the company sent out the email. And by the time anybody knew that the company was closing, um, that information didn't hit the streets until it was hitting the streets concurrently with, but don't worry, we've provided you this open source firmware and instructions on how to flash it so you can still use the device after we're gone. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com support to learn more. 
And remember, for $5 a month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Adam writes, I listened with interest a few weeks ago when you discussed using KeePass as an alternative password manager. I'm a long-term KeePass user myself on desktop and my Selfish OS phone, where I have the database, a passphrase, and a key file. I sync the database across devices, but copy the key file out of band. This way, if the sync of the DB is compromised, the key file is still safe. So the question is, do you use a key file? If not, why not? Am I being overcautious? I do not use a key file because the secret that I use to lock my vault, I am mathematically certain, (laughs) has enough entropy to be the sole bulwark, and it's not reused from anywhere else, and it literally only exists inside my brain. So uh, short of a scalpel and more advanced (laughs) neurosurgery technology than we really have today, you ain't getting that thing. So the, the key file wouldn't really help me much. If I had concerns about my passphrase being compromised some other way, then a key file would be a form of two-factor authentication and would certainly be helpful. I just don't have those concerns. Yeah, because rather than that scalpel and so on, I think the you know $5 rubber hose cryptanalysis is the way to go. But I do wonder, how, do you know how many iterations the KeyPass key derivation function uses on your password before using it? And turning it into a thing? Because I know one thing we learned recently from the LastPass and Bitwarden and so on is that the recommendation for the number of iterations has gone up significantly over the last couple of years from like, I think, 100,000 to like 600,000. And that could be a factor as well, which just may mean everybody might want to update their passphrase with the higher number of rounds on the key derivation function. I'm not that familiar with KeePass in particular, but this exact same concept applies to the disk encryption in FreeBSD, where you can have a passphrase or a key file or both. And having that extra key file, providing that extra entry can help. It's just a matter of, do you manage the key file in a way that actually adds security? And it sounds like you do. So maybe it's overcautious, but is it hurting anything? Probably not. I actually can't tell you the exact number of iterations on mine, but I can tell you how that number of iterations was decided. And it's when you go to create your vault in KeePass, there is a button that you can click that says one second delay. And if you click that button, what it does is figure out how many iterations can I get through in one second of saturated processing time. And that's how many iterations it uses. And that's what I did. So I don't know the actual number, but I know it's large. And that's the right way to do it. And same thing happens with the Geli on FreeBSD that we were just talking about, except for I think it maybe does one and a half seconds, but same idea. But it means that as computers get faster, when you create a new encrypted volume, the number of rounds goes up automatically. Whereas what we saw with LastPass and similar ones was that they just picked the number that was the recommendation when they wrote the software 10 or more years ago and then forgot to update it. And so doing something that's based on the hardware can make sense. Although at the same time, you can picture that, you know, you don't want something that, yeah, your computer can chew through that in a second, but your cell phone is going to get hot in your pocket for 10 seconds straight while it's trying to derive the same key. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.